0: to say this are you ready I am my greatest marriage problem I am my greatest marriage problem I am my greatest marriage problem wives say it to yourself because when you begin to say that you have started walking down the pathway of change husbands say it to yourself Because when you do, you have begun to walk down the pathway of change. Enough of the blame. Enough of the accusation. Enough of pointing the fingers. Enough of making ourselves righteous by pointing at the sin of another person. It doesn't work. It never leads to change. It never leads to peace. It never leads to reconciliation. It leads to a horrible, angry, self-righteous standoff that locks your marriage into a place where change will never take place. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that's why I've got to say I am my greatest marriage problem. Because you have two people that say that. You have the beginnings of remarkable, transformational, glorious Change that can happen in that relationship look back at Luke 6 because I want to say one one more thing to you notice the example that Christ uses here it's the example of a tree it's a wonderful, wonderful example because it's so simple to understand think about this What's the best way to recognize an apple tree? By apples. But you know this is true. If you look up and you see apples, you instinctively know that that tree is appleistic all the way down to its roots. If it didn't have appleism in its roots, it wouldn't grow apples as fruit. You will never plant peach pits and get apples. If you plant peach pits and get apples, run. Run fast, run far, run long. Something terrible has happened to the universe. And so what you have there is the principle of organic consistency. The principle of organic consistency. There's an organic consistency between what is in my heart and what comes out of my words and my behavior. Now that means this. Marriage problems are not first behavior problems. Marriage problems are not first communication problems. Marriage problems are heart problems. If you don't fix the heart, you don't fix the marriage. Pretend with me that I have... A huge apple tree in my backyard in Philadelphia. I live in Center City, so I neither have a yard nor a tree. Uh, It's kind of hard to have a tree in your backyard when you're on the second floor. Uh, But pretend. And every year it grows twisted, brown, pulpy, and edible apples. Organic hockey pucks. And... My wife comes to me and says, Paul, oh, it doesn't make any sense for us to have this apple tree and we can never eat these apples. Why don't you, can't you do something for our apple tree? And I think and I ponder, I love this woman, I want to help her. And so I say, I th- I've come up with a good idea. I think I can fix our tree. Saturday I'm going to do that. Saturday morning, little looks out the window and she sees me carrying these items. I'm carrying a big tall ladder, a pair of branch cutters, an industrial grade pneumatic nail gun and three bushels of red delicious apples. And I climb up the ladder and I cut all the apples off the tree and I very symmetrically nail three bushels of red delicious apples on that tree. From a hundred yards you would think, this man must be the horticulturalist of the century. If you're my wife, what are you thinking? (laughs) You're thinking this is the big one. The doctor said he'd be this way if he lived. (laughs) Now what's going to happen to those apples? They're going to rot. Because they're not hooked to the life-giving resources of the roots of the tree. But even more profoundly, what kind of apples is that tree going to grow the next season? Twisted, pulpy, dry, brown, inedible apples. Now, once you hear me say this, I am deeply persuaded that most of what we do to change a marriage is nothing more or less than apple nailing. I think it is a scandal that there are Hundreds of marriage books on the shelves of Christian bookstores that never mention the heart. And so a couple has got a, some distance and some coldness in the relationship, and so a counselor tells them to go out for a date night. And as if that's going to alter the face of the marriage. These people are angry. They're hurt. What kind of date do you think that's going to (laughs) be? I know a couple who was given that advice. The husband thought this was his opportunity. And so he rented, reserved a beautiful, beautiful room in a luxurious hotel in Center City, Philadelphia. He got a... A reservation at one of philadelphia 's finest restaurants. He thinks by doing that he 'll finally silence his wife if just for a weekend. You get it? because he 's doing all this for you, spending all this money. They get in that quiet restaurant, and she thinks it 's quiet in here it 's a great place to talk. Oh my. And she says, you know, dear, this is a good time for us to talk about what's going on in our, rela- our relationship. You know, there are, there are many things that you do that just hurt me. Now, this man is really happy to hear this. And he says, are you kidding me? Do you know how many thousands of dollars this weekend is costing me? And you're going to sit at this luxurious restaurant and beat me up? So she stands up in this dignified place and says, You, if you think you're going to buy me off, you're crazy. And she storms out of the restaurant. At that point, he sings a doxology. He is steaming angry, pays the bill, goes to the parking garage to get his car, and drives angrily into the night looking for his wife. Bad advice. That's apple nailing. Your problem isn't schedule. Your problem isn't communication techniques. Your problem isn't that you've forgotten to date. Your problem is your heart. And if you don't get at what's going on at the heart of your marriage, you will never fix what's going on there. Now that... that Begs the question, okay Paul, help us, what is that heart difficulty? When you say you've got to get at what's going on in the heart in a marriage, what in the world are you talking about? This is where we get to that very, very helpful word, worship. Turn to Romans 1. Now, before I look at Romans 1, maybe there are some of you that are sitting and thinking, okay, when is this man going to get to a marriage passage? These aren't marriage passages. I thought I came to hear about marriage. Well, I don't want to uh, assume anything here, but I want you to think with me. Have you noticed that your Bible isn't arranged by topic? Have you noticed that? it doesn't have tabs on the side according to topic some of you are bothered by that you wish the bible just arranged a topic so you can go to your topic of interest the bible is not arranged by topic not by accident or oversight the bible is arranged the way it's arranged because that's the best way for it to be arranged the bible is essentially a story Probably better to say, it's a theologically annotated story. (coughs) It's a story with God's notes. (coughs) And that story is meant to give you a helicopter view of everyday life. It's meant to tell you all the things you need to know about you and life in a fallen world and the plan and purposes of God and the operation of God's grace and all those important life topics. You can go to an encyclopedia and read an article and not read what's before it and not read what, what's after it and make sense out of it. But you can't do that with the Bible. Because the Bible all fits and holds together. Now here's what this means. If all you're doing is running to the marriage passages to understand your marriage, first of all, you're missing the vast majority of the material on marriage. But the second thing is, you'll never make sense out of those marriage passages unless you understand the whole of the message of the Word of God. To the degree that every passage tells me things about me and things about God and things about life in the fallen world and things about God's grace, to that degree, every passage gives me information about every topic. The Bible itself is a manual on marriage because it's a manual on life. And so you can actually get profoundly important marriage material out of every portion of God's Word. And I think this one is one of those. Verse 18 of Romans 1. For for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles." Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now listen to this. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now hear this. You are by your identity, by your very nature, you are a worshiper. Now what does that mean? Here's what it means. You will attach your identity. You will attach your meaning and purpose. You will attach your sense of well-being to something. You will live for something. Everybody does that. There will be something in life that will come somehow, some way to rule your heart. And there are only two categories. You're either attaching your meaning and purpose and identity and inner sense of well-being to the Creator, or you're attaching that to the creation. Now that is a very significant observation. And here's what Paul says sin does to all of us. All of us, 10 out of 10 people in this room, suffer from this. Sin causes us to exchange worship and service of the Creator for worship and service of the creation. Things take the place of God. Things that are perfectly good to desire rise to the place where they become functional God replacements. Listen. It is not wrong for you to desire comfort. But it must not rule you. If you're a wife, and you attach your identity and meaning and purpose and inner sense of peace... To comfort, and the way you get your comfort is by turning your home into a museum to your d- domestic dexterity, there will be no end to your irritation and your frustration. Because you don't actually want your home to look like anyone lives in it. And you're immediately irritated when the pillow is rumpled. Or oh, when there are crumbs on the counter. Now you know what I'm talking about. If you're a man, think about this, and you attach your identity and your meaning and purpose to your job, and where you are getting your value, and where you're getting your excitement and life, your identity in life is your job. Listen. When you drive home at night, you are driving away from the place where you get your identity. Your family actually lives outside of your value system. No wonder when you get home, you're demanding and irritated and isolated. What rules your heart will always, always... Exercise inescapable control over your life and your behavior. If you're a person here and you're getting your well being from the acceptance or respect of your spouse, what will you do? You'll be hyper vigilant. You'll watch their every reaction to you. You'll ride the roller coaster of everything they say and how they say it and when they say it and where they say it. And you'll be a master at different qualities of tone of voice and look of the face. And living with you will be like living in a minefield. Now, is acceptance and respect a good thing? Absolutely, it's a good thing. But it must not rule you. Let me give you the principle. A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. I can't tell you how many Westminster Seminary students in their last semester of seminary I've counseled who have done severe damage to their marriages and their families over the pursuit of theological knowledge. Is theological knowledge a good thing? It absolutely is, but it must not rule your heart. And so these men were absentee fathers. They neglected their wife. They neglected their children. They were irritable every time they were disturbed. It's a good thing that's become a bad thing. I can't tell you how many wives have said this to me. All I ever wanted was a man who would make me happy. I think that poor man is cooked. (laughs) Because that man is to love you. He should nourish and cherish you. He should be your dearest, best friend. But he cannot be your mini-Messiah. He cannot be the source of your identity and your meaning and purpose and your inner sense of well-being. Now, i got to say this. Maybe the problem starts with this weird thing we call Western culture dating. I think Western culture dating is just a step above used car sales. <laughs> Nervous laughter in the room. Because when you, when you uh, date, the last thing you want is for the person to get to know you because you're trying to sell yourself for the person. So a man who doesn't like to shop will shop. He'll say, yes, dear, I'd love to go to another 12 stores and look for those shoes that are in your head and probably never ever been produced. Because, baby, when I'm with you, I'm shopalistic. <laughs> or, or a woman who doesn't like sports will watch sports. She'll say, sure, dear, I'd love to watch another three NBA games. Now she'll give it away because in the middle of a very important game, she'll say something like this, my, aren't their uniforms cute? a man would never say that if a man thought that he'd be terrified (laughs) and then six months into marriage this woman is crying this is not the man I married this is the man you married are you ready for this the man you dated was a fake you get it you see that's that's this thing that takes place in all of us somehow some way all of us put the creation in the creator's place somehow some way all of us allow a desire for a good thing to become a bad thing because that desire becomes a ruling thing And I'm going to take you in a few minutes to a passive scripture that will demonstrate the powerful effect what we're talking about right now has on the principal relationships of life. You say, Paul, uh, I don't know what hooks me. I don't, I don't know where my idols are. Can I help you, wife? Where in your marriage do you tend to be most frustrated with your husband? Where do you tend to be most discouraged? Most irritated? Say or do things that you probably shouldn't say or do. Husband, where do you tend to struggle with the most anger toward your wife? The most impatience? You see, I think we... We negate the power of our idols because we're not going to a temple to worship a false god. But if something in your life has risen to the point where at the street level it has more ability to control your words and behavior than God does, then that is a very significant thing. Marriage problems are heart problems. Heart problems are worship problems. Something is ruling your heart. And if... Creation rules my heart. I can only look at you in one of two ways. If you're helping me get what I want, I love you. I thank God that you're in my life. But you're in the way of what I want. I'm spontaneously angry and irritated. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these amazing perspectives of your Word. And Lord, we pray as we unpack them further that you would give us deep insight into our marriages. Insights that begin to free us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.